Listener Production. Today, this podcast is being recorded on Gadigal land. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this country and elders past, present. We extend our respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. It's weird. It's sort of like you're a voice in my head that, and the way that I approach so many things, including my relationships, but also interviews and things like that. Sometimes I chime in, by the way. Yeah, when so, it's normal for like, them to so, Just <laughs> in case, they're like, why the hell is she... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why is she talking? <laughs> you can chime in if you like as well, yes. You yeah. are still like off mic, but it'll come It's very the- casual. Like, it's very casual. It's a lot, isn't it? I am so beyond excited for this this conversation. Um, Those of you who don't know or haven't listened to any episodes of this podcast, I have been talking about Esther Perel forever. I mean, Lem, producer Lem knows that when we first, when I first, you know, met Lem and when we're talking about even the start of this year, reminding of who we want to get in the podcast, your name is always first. And I am so excited. I'm trying to be very cool, calm and collected and considered like you are. Let's take a deep (laughs) breath. Let's take a deep breath, both of us. But we have amazing psychotherapist, God, speaker of nine languages, genius, my absolute lord. I I said to the Uber driver, you're my lord and saviour. And he was like, he was like, person and I made him get it up on his car play like listen to where should we begin um I have Esther Perel here and thank you so much for taking time I know how busy you are no it's a treat to be here I am I am just beyond thrilled I feel so um, and you know when you tell me if you've been walking around listening to where should we begin and having the airport in the ear and developing a relationship with me in a way Mm. you know me more than I know you Yes, you've been listening to me, you've been having conversations with me, you've been preparing questions in your mind with mm-hmm. me, and in a way, you trust me already a little bit. I do. So it's a very interesting way to start. It we is, are not it? even. Yeah, I have the same thing when I'm people listen to my podcast. Yes. I think they know, they come up to me and will do mannerisms that I do or say kind of phrases that I say, and you have this weird, yeah, uneven, uh, unbalanced, and almost I kind of feel like I'm... I have to step back a bit because I have to see how they perceive me. So sorry for saying you're my lord and savior. Probably wasn't the most (laughs) comfortable thing to say. But I've been listening to Where Should We Begin since I was 21. So really my whole um, formative years of being in romantic relationships that weren't just high school flings, and I'm 27 now, have been kind of formed by you in a way. And I strive to... Whenever I have an issue, I try and find a podcast episode about that thing and it will always surprise me in the most amazing way. I, I am just... Do you have any episodes that stand out for you? Well, I actually listened... Um, I Sorry, I listened for the first time this morning to the man who was in his 40s from uh, Esther Calling, um, which is a little mini-series you I've do. I've been in a relationship fifth. that has never lasted more than four months. Yes. And I'm 40 years old. Yes. yes. And I kind of listened to it just because it was recent on the feed and I... I thought, oh, I won't relate to this. And I ended up crying throughout the episode. Do you know that I was in London this summer at the Financial Time Festival and a man comes behind me and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, I am the still single at 40. <gasps> did he message that woman ever? He did. He did? And are they he together? Did. No. Oh. No, but he, <laughs> he did do it. And, but it was so like, it did, he identified himself by the sentence, the opening line of the episode. What's that like for you, interacting with people so deeply 
on the phone in that little mini-series and also, like you said, on your podcast so widely. And having this deep connection from them too, is it uncomfortable? Is it confronting? No, it's deeply affirming. Mm. It's, it, gives, it gives the meaning of everything I do. You know, he comes up... First of all, I suspect that if you thought the episode was trash, you would not come to the festival, True. you wouldn't tap me on the shoulder. Mm. So the very fact that he identified himself said, I appreciated what you did. And that's a very important thing because when you tell the stories of others, mm. you really want them to feel that you did right by them. Well, you, you do it so well. And I think that's why I love listening to your podcast because there's never, ever any judgment. There's definitely a real understanding and there's your real opinion. You kind of call people out but in the most empathetic. And I challenge them. I don't judge them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I want to speak to you about something that a, a theme that stands out as a whole is infidelity. I was listening to the episode, um, we started as an affair. I think a lot of people are very um, confronted by infidelity and cheating and, you know, it's on the far end of the spectrum of the worst thing anyone can ever do. I don't know if I have a strange opinion on this from, you know, being so open to non-monogamy. I'm usually in open relationships. and But it's something that you speak about so, um, not softly, but you are very understanding and almost ready to offer a different perspective other than you're an awful person and you're trash and you aren't worth anything. And I wonder if you could just speak about uh, your views on infidelity and how you think it comes about because I presume as an assumption that people think that people cheat on people to hurt the other person. But from listening to interviews that you do, your know, sessions that you do, and Dan Savage, my other Lord and Saviour, um, listening to him, it tends to be more about selfishness from what I understand or from doing something for someone, not to someone else. Can I do a little exercise yes. before I answer your question? Mm. And we can do it with everybody present in this sure. room. Sure, I'm ready. Don't raise your hand until I'm done. Okay. But the question is simply this. Have you been affected by the experience of infidelity in your life? Either because you were the child whose parents had an affair or may even have left. Either because you are the child of an illicit relationship. Either because you are one of the three protagonists of the adulterous triangle. You had the affair, you were cheated on, you are the lover, the third person. Either because you're the friend on whose shoulder someone's been weeping, or because you're the friend that someone is sharing all these titillating stories to. Mm -hmm. Have you been affected by the experience of infidelity? Right. But that's exactly it. It's about <laughs> eight and a half to nine out of 10. So in every audience, thousands of people about 85 to 90% of people have been affected by the experience. And the reason I ask that question is because it is to say infidelity isn't just a story of a few rotten apples. Mm -hmm. It affects so many of us. Mm -hmm. So many of us, broken families, disrupted friendships, of course, broken relationships, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. And it's so painful mm -hmm. that I really think, because it is so painful, that we need a different approach mm -hmm. and one that really understands the nuances and the complexity of this and doesn't just go into perpetrator, victim, mm -hmm. good and bad. Too many of us have had the experience and we need more help than the current model lets us have. Yeah. yeah. So that's the first thing. Then 
comes the very simple idea that you always hurt someone when you betray them mm -hmm. and when you violate their trust. You do. But that is not necessarily the reason why you do it. Mm -hmm. And that when we work with affairs, it's important that we have the ability to hold both experiences, what it did to you and also what it meant for me. And to be able to hold these two sometimes irreconcilable experiences mm -hmm. is what makes working with affairs so difficult mm -hmm. and so challenging. People don't only have affairs because there's something wrong with them or wrong in the relationship. There's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's the discontents of the relationship, loneliness and neglect and indifference and arguing the whole time and sexlessness for years on end, etc. But sometimes it's not even related to the relationship. It's related to you. Mm -hmm. It's not always because there's something missing in the relationship. Sometimes it's a whole different thing. And therefore, the betrayed partner, it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. It is not about you. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine this? It's happening to you, but it's not about you. And all of that went into 10 years of working for almost exclusively with couples and families who had infidelity mm -hmm. in the midst. You know, it's the only commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible. Yes. You who talk about the Savior and the Lord, you know. <laughs> once for doing it and once just for thinking about it. Yes, yes. Right? So somebody among our ancestors understood mm -hmm. how powerful and how painful mm -hmm. this thing was called infidelity. Mm. Do you find the way you approach it is ever, not taboo, but it's ever hard for people to digest. So I think people will listen to conversations about infidelity and want people to be reprimanded. Yes, I think that the book's about this is the worst thing that can happen mm. and nobody can ever be either understood or forgiven for it or this is the end of the relationship. There is no coming back from that. Those books have been written. And I wanted to write another book that a lot of people were looking for. What do you do if you still want to stay? You know, mm -hmm. it used to be that it was the shame was about leaving. Mm -hmm. Now, especially for women, the shame is about staying. Mm -hmm. If you can go, you should throw the dog on the curb and get the hell out of there. Mm. But our lives are complicated. We have mm -hmm. kids, we have disabilities in our midst, we have economic strain, we have a lot of things that bind us to the relationships that we have created. Mm -hmm. It's not so simple yeah. to just say, I'm out of here. Yeah. I wanted to help those people. And give a framework of how to stay yes. if you wanted to yes. or had to yes. stay. Yes, yes, it is a crisis. Mm -hmm. It is an alarm system. It sometimes jolts people out of a state of laziness and complacency that they've been sitting in in years. Mm -hmm. And it sometimes can actually shake up the relationship in such a way that something better can come out of it than what was. Mm -hmm. More honesty, more connection, more intimacy, more accountability and more equality. Mm -hmm. That may happen. That doesn't mean that affairs are good for your relationship. No. But, you know, my, my, my line one day was to say, nobody wants you to have cancer. But people have, have understood that a life-threatening disease can sometimes bring you a new perspective on your life. Right. I would no more encourage you to have cancer than I would encourage you to have an affair. Of course, yeah. But I do understand that an affair can create a crisis from which something good can be born. Yeah, absolutely. If if society and people as a whole accept that infidelity is the worst thing that you can do, and we all know how much damage it can cause, 
Why do you think it's so it's so common? I feel as oh, though I it's thought you would ask me a different question. No, what did you think I was going to ask? You because a better question than I asked you. Separate. <laughs> <laughs> you asked no. separate questions. <laughs> no, I think it's such an interesting way. It's like, why is it so common? It's always been common. Mm. Adultery has existed since marriage was invented, mm. as well as the taboo against mm. it. But men have practically had a license to cheat all over the mm-hmm. world throughout history. That is mm-hmm. true. You know, and often without facing much consequences. Mm. Whereas women, you know, monogamy was primarily an imposition on women Mm -hmm. so that he would know who are the children that he needs to feed and who will get the cows when he dies. It was an economic institution. It had very little to do with love. Why it has become so much more painful today is not because it's more common. It's because romantic love in which... You know, you were 21 when you began listening. You're 27 today. You may or may not have a partner, you know, and decide to move into a different life arrangement within the next five years. You will have had 10 years of sexual and relational nomadism. You are going to be looking for a person, at least one of many, but that you will call, you know, one and only. And that person for whom you spend 10 years, you know, waiting and roaming around you are going to demand that they never cheat on you. Because the whole point is that, you know, you used to be married and had sex for the first time. Now you marry or you commit yourself and you stop having sex with others Mm -hmm. unless you negotiate consensual non-monogamy. So the point is, once I find you, my one and only, and we really find connection and you know, you're the one for whom I'm going to stop being on my apps. You know, you're the one <laughs> yes. amongst the thousand people at my fingertips. I pick you and you yeah. pick me. Mm-hmm. You bet we don't include infidelity as part of our story. It's yes. not meant to happen. So you're saying it's, it's more sacrifice in terms of giving up my The my meaning of it means that it means yes. the whole relationship is flawed and fraud and I no longer know who I am yes. and what we are about and I thought this would never happen to me. And so what's changed is not that it's more frequent. What's changed is that it's become much more painful. Yes. And it's become more painful because it isn't meant to happen. It isn't meant to happen because we marry for love which we didn't do before. When you didn't marry for love, then you could have an affair for love. Mm. But once you marry for love, and I say marriage as in we commit for love, mm. then, then if you have an affair, then that means that the love is problematic, the love is broken. Mm-hmm. You spoke earlier about if you want to stay in the relationship and you created a, wrote a book to kind of not just condemn and villainise um, someone who cheats. Or the person who stays. Or the person who stays or, you know. You're weak. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a huge thing. I was my question actually is about that. How do you kind of measure up if you're being forgiving and you are able to actually work through something, or if you're being a pushover? How do you how are you able to reconcile with yourself if I genuinely am able to get over this and it doesn't actually affect me, or am I denying my actual thoughts and needs and just doing this because of childhood trauma or whatever I've been through? That's a good question. Look, let me start this. Mm -hmm. In committed relationship, in our experience as therapists, the vast majority of people who have cheated are not chronic philanderers. They're not constant cheaters. No, they're people who often have been two, five, 15 years, 20 years together in a relationship. And one day they cross a line that they never thought they would cross. Mm -hmm. There are chronic cheaters, but those people have a lot of other issues too. Yes. And the cheating is one feature of their personality and their behavior. The vast majority of people have been in a relationship with somebody and then one day they go outside. 
So that changes the question about, you know, am I just a pushover? It's different if I am an 18 or a 22-year-old and I meet somebody and that somebody, they, her, she, them, you know, um, he, (laughs) forget all the pronouns, you know, is constantly elsewhere. Mm. then at some point you realize and you say, you know, grow up and then let's meet again in a few years and see what has happened to you. Mm -hmm. And no, I do not need to just forgive because then I just start to feel like, you know, I'm not valuing myself enough. Mm. But if I am with you for a few years, a good few years, Mm. and this thing happens, and I think, you know, whatever. Mm. A lot of things make me decide that I may want to forgive you. Mm. A, maybe I have been completely neglectful of you all these years. Mm. Maybe I've been working nonstop, drinking nonstop, refusing to be intimate with you, talking down on you, being very abusive. There's a lot of other relational betrayals Mm -hmm. that are not just about cheating. Yes, I think that's forgotten a lot. So if that person suddenly starts to say, you know, but at least I don't cheat. Then you kind of want to say to you, no, you haven't cheated, but Mm. look what else you've done. Mm. You know, is that what is supposed to be in your relationship? Is that part of your vows? Mm. So when I say I'm going to work it out with you, the first thing I need to know is that you actually recognize the hurt you caused me, that you feel the guilt that I think is appropriate to that, Mm. and that you really are putting the effort in to show me that this relationship matters to you, that you value it, and you're going to do whatever it takes to repair it. Mm. If all you say to me is, oh, come on, it's over. Why don't you bring this up one more time? Yeah. Then there is not much to forgive mm-hmm. because you have somebody who basically doesn't want to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. Forgiving goes in pair with the person's level of responsibility and accountability for what they've done. Mm. But getting over it would just be it's uh, someone telling you to move on. Move right. on. Why are you making such a big deal? I've already yeah. said I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Why should I say I'm sorry again? Uh-huh. You know, like, come on, let it go already. Yeah. You know? Right. But they also say that on day two. Uh-huh. Speaking of childhood trauma, <laughs> right before um, you speak about, um, and a lot of people do speak about, uh, the fact that romantic relationships mirror uh, the relationship we had with a caregiver when we were very um, in our early childhoods. And I wonder, because I've been through a fair bit of therapy and I've listened to you and I, I try to do my best to recognise patterns that I have. Like, for example, for me, infidelity isn't a trauma that I had in my childhood. My, my, my dad um, left when I was born, but it wasn't because of cheating. It was gambling, right? So my thing is financial. So if someone cheated on me, I forgive, I forgive quite easily. But if someone is bad with money or um, I feel is taking advantage of my money, it's a full-blown rage, right? So uh, with things like that, I'm able to reconcile it. But And with therapy, I think the easy part is almost understanding how your childhood trauma manifests. But once you get to that stage, I struggle with actually actioning what I'm supposed to do better. So I'll know what I'm meant to be doing, how I'm meant to react in situa- situation, and then it feels so deeply uncomfortable or so um, not like me that I don't know how to reconcile it. So, for example, the cheating thing. Say if I get cheated on, I'm supposed to, if my therapist says, you know, you should, this is a huge betrayal, I can't feel that. I can't it's feel okay. that betrayal. You can say that is not the betrayal that triggers me. Mm, okay. That betrayal does not 
nearly throw me off in the same way as someone who takes advantage of me, robs me, mm. lies to me about money. Somehow, you lying about sex with somebody else has a different effect on me than someone that lies to me about money. So Because okay. I have a history with that. I mean, what it, what I'm, it's mm. not I'm okay. I am not there to tell you what you should be upset about. Mm. Yeah. And to think that you should be more upset about that because in my value system or in my personal history, that was the issue for me. If you're going to be a therapist, it's about letting the person really understand what is it that matters to them yeah. and not to impose your value system on them. Mm. If you tell me my dad was a gambler, my dad left my mother stranded, my mm. dad, you know, when, when he left, we realized there were holes God knows where, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. that to me is what gets me, then I say, yes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then I say, so tell me about the people you date. Mm, yeah. Right? <laughs> And do you find yourself often in a situation where you end up mirroring your mother? Following up on the guy, is it guys you date or girls uh, you date? Whoever. Uh, whoever. whoever people me. you date on the people, <laughs> whoever you pick. <laughs> You know, on the people you date and then that, you know, do you find yourself in a, in a pattern where you repeat a story? Sometimes you repeat the story because consciously or unconsciously you're going to do better than your mother. Mm, yeah. Sometimes it's because, you know, it's not the familiarity of just bringing back your dad. It's also that sometimes, especially among daughters and mothers, it's about... I'm not going to be in the situation my mother was in, but I'm going to recreate the same frame. And then from that place, I'm going to try to do differently from her. Yes. Well, I copped a lot of flack online recently because I went on a rant about how no man's ever getting one cent from me and how <laughs> no one's ever having a bank account with me. But you have the same thing if it's a woman? Uh, no, actually, I don't yeah. think so we the, actually spoke about this. I did ask her, yeah, because I'm with a woman and I was like, oh, we do have a joint account, actually. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's actually, yeah, that's, yeah. So I copped a lot of flack for that. But like say, that's that actually kind of is a good example. So I know that maybe with that, I'm understanding this is my trauma. I understand how I got there. I understand that maybe It's I should... It's history tra- and it may or may not be traumatic. It's not because you experienced something in childhood that it's by definition traumatic. It's, it's uh, you know, everybody these days puts the word childhood and it has the word trauma next to it. No, it's my, my experience in childhood, my history. Mm. And sometimes it's traumatic and sometimes it wasn't. Actually, sorry, about that, like people say the term baggage, right? I don't want to date somebody with baggage. Mm. So I got with my girlfriend and she had two kids from a previous marriage. Mm-hmm. And everyone around me, as I was approaching her, was like, what are you getting yourself into? It's too much baggage. What do you think of that rhetoric of, you know, it's kind of like it's a scarcity of connection, really, when people are calling each other to, to say, you can't just be near that person. They have too much baggage. What do you think of that rhetoric? Like, I think that we put a lot of stock on the structure of relationships when in fact what determines if it works is how you get along. Yeah. Mm. If you manage this complexity well, if you find a way to get along with those kids, if depending on what relationship she has with the parent of the biological or not biological previous or other parent of the children, it's the whole system. Yeah. And if that system is working well, then, you know, you have good stuff in your suitcase. Mm. I mean, baggage is, can be a lot of jewelry. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> This that idea true. that by definition it's a negative word, it's heavy, it's the stuff of somebody else that you shouldn't take on. Yeah. 
Maybe you're not feeling like you're taking on baggage. Maybe you feel like you're taking on a, a family that you never had, children who are really positively welcoming you. I don't know the details of your thing, but I think that the question is not the structure. A mother with two kids and me, the single person who met her. The, the question is, tell me how it's working. Yeah. What are the challenges? What are the tensions? What are the surprises? What are the things you discover inside of you that you didn't anticipate? Never thought I'd get along with kids. Never thought I'd be with a woman. Never thought that I'd actually want to be in a, in a unit like that called family. Whatever it is you're discovering about you. What are you discovering with her? That is what's going to tell me if this works or not. Not a kind of a, you know, I don't know much from looking at the outside of your suitcase. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I learned by opening the suitcase yeah. and seeing what's inside. Yeah, so true. A lot of the questions that I got when I asked my audience what they'd like to ask you, a lot of them yeah. were about when to know to leave a relationship. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's it's a very big question. But um, where should we begin? There's a lot about people who are stuck. And... Because people come to therapy when they're stuck. Yes. That is when you come, generally. Yes. So how do you know what, if something is worth fighting for, should be left or is a result of your history? Your yes. <laughs> history, yes. you yes. know, if you're having a, like that man who hadn't had a relationship more than four or five months and was 40, you're listening to it and I'm thinking, he sounds like a really lovely guy and, and he also was able to very easily with you analyse how he was feeling and why he felt this way. And it made me quite sad because I thought, wow, he it probably wasn't anything about this person or the relationship. It was his reaction. And if he'd just done the work a bit earlier, maybe things could have been different. So how do you know that it isn't an avoidant reaction or uh, that this person actually isn't right for you or... But we knew instantly with him that he was, that it was his relationship with his mother and his deep sense of responsibility Mm. toward his mother, who Mm. had been abandoned by her husband, Mm. um, that made him, after a few months of being carefree with a woman, instantly feel like he was beholden. Mm. And that beholdenness associated, he associated with the relationship with his mother, or at least in our conversation, he began to do that. So, of course, it was history. Yes. But... Not all history is negative, first of all, and not all history um, we want to change. So there's two different questions. How do you deal with relational ambivalence? It's too good to leave and it's too bad to stay. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay? That's why I just want to be single for the rest of my life. I stand in my avoidant era. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. Too young to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm freshly out of a relationship, so I think that's, okay, that, that's, that's the mindset that I'm in. <laughs> You know, and I think there's a lot of way to answer this thing because the first thing is why are so many of us constantly having all these doubts? Mm. And two of the main reasons why we're having these doubts in our relationships these days is the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. We really have decided that to be in a relationship has to be a source of happiness. Yeah. Not a source of survival, not a source of companionship, not a source of co-parenting, not all of that too. But more and more it has to be, I'm happy and you help me become the best version of myself. Mm. Now, that is unheard of in history, to bring that amount of expectations to one relationship. Mm. So then I'm busy all the time asking, how happy am I? Am I happy? Am I happy enough? 
could I be happier? And I'm no longer leaving because I'm really unhappy. I leave because I think I could be happier. Mm. Because we live in a society that says all the time you could do better, maximize, optimize, don't settle. Mm -hmm. The apps. Okay? Mm. So you have a whole <laughs> culture that is feeding this relational ambivalence. Mm. The second piece is authenticity. Constantly in pursuit of authenticity. Mm -hmm. It used to be that we, are, we were guided by our commitments. It's the commitment that was the compass. Mm -hmm. I made a commitment and I stick to it. Mm -hmm. Now what is the compass is my authenticity. How true do I feel to myself? Mm -hmm. Do you know when, how true you feel? I don't, half the time I don't know what it means for me to be true to myself. On occasion I have a sense and much of the time I'm not totally sure. Mm. Is this what I feel? feel do I so feel this really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You know, I love you. I'm, do I love you enough? Am I in love with you? No, I'm not in love with you anymore, but I still love you. But I don't have desire for you. If I don't have desire for you, does that mean that I should leave? Mm -hmm. You know, is it just a crush? Is it just narcissistic? Is it just, yeah. a, you know, you can drive yourself bananas. Oh, and I do. Yeah, okay? no, constantly. I'm like, exactly that. So one piece is to Am say. I not, have I manipulated everyone yes, in my life to, to right. love me? Oh, no, I'm just amazing. Then the ego goes high. Then it goes, it's out of control. Right. And I would say. A piece of ambivalence in relationships is normal. Mm. We do feel excitement and fear and attraction and disgust and love and hate with the people that are closest to us. Mm. So it's not because you have ambivalence that by definition it means I need to do something mm -hmm. to stop the ambivalence. Maybe I need to do something to live with the ambivalence. Right. To understand that. Do you think in the 40 years I'm with the same guy I haven't had a hundred times when I think I want to get out? Yeah. Or what am I doing here? Or who is this person? Vice versa, I'm sure. It's yeah. not just, you know, or like no, I can't take this anymore. No. But we what have we decided that we could because it's romantic, we should never have a doubt. We yeah. should for sure always be certain because mm -hmm. authenticity is certainty. You know, that is what is really off. So a lot of people. Actually, it's not about how do I know if I need to go. It's about how do I learn to stay and live in a relationship where I experience mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. When is it worth doing that work? Always? At least no. exploring it? No, it no. a lot of it depends on, you know, there are a lot of people. When I think of your age, for mm -hmm. example, I think there are a lot of people that I could probably have been with, but it was way too young and it wasn't the right timing. Mm -hmm. Had I met these people later on, I would have had a very different experience with them. So in your 20s, it's much easier to say onward. Yeah. I mean, you know, this isn't working onward. Mm -hmm. In your 30s, you don't think like this. In your 50s, mm -hmm. you think differently. And this is for everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think that how we experience the challenges of our relationship changes with the developmental stage that we are in. We, it's not a static thing. Mm. You know, if you have kids, if you have economic interdependence, all kinds of things make the question about is it worth to work on this or not different. Okay. If so, a lot of my listeners, our listeners are what late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, so it's kind of um, women late twenties, early thirties. Um, if you so, are with somebody and they've been basically doing the same thing over and over again, and every time they promise to you, I won't do it again, and yet it happens all over, mm -hmm. you basically say to yourself or to this person, "Go grow up and find me around the corner at some other time." And oh, you go. That's right. We could have grown up from Esther Perel. Okay? Be yeah. Basically, because there is something about saying, 
I don't have to yeah. accept this and find ways to rationalize staying with you when you're treating me like shit. Yes. What if that is boring? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what if they're a nice person, but I'm it's a person in theory, it's like, oh, I can do better. If, I'm, I'm going to tell you something you're not going to like to hear. Is it that everyone's bored? No. It's when you are bored, ask yourself, what am I doing to bring some energy here? Okay. Rather than sitting and twiddling your thumbs and saying, so you're not doing it for me. <laughs> you know, so are you going to say something that's going to make me more interested? Yeah. You know, you're not, this is very convenient. You yeah. know, I sit here, I do squat <laughs> and I'm looking at you and I'm getting all pissed because you're not turning me on and energizing me and making me excited and making me, you know, butterflies in my stomach. Seriously? <laughs> and then you call. tell me nice but boring. Who is boring? Oh, you're not so renting a life entertainment unit. You're, you're finding a person to oh, be with. That's true. That's true. Okay, so there should be something done. If, if they're a nice person, we should put some energy into it. It's not if they are a nice person. It's if you want to experience something different, what are you doing for that to be the case? Mm. Rather than sitting and saying to the other person, no, my temperature hasn't risen. <laughs> yeah. I feel really, I mean, that wasn't a question for me, so it doesn't affect me at all. <laughs> ah, that's for your friends. Yeah, he was that's so, for your friends. Yes. It actually wasn't anything to do with me getting bored. But I think that's kind of my ADHD as well, though. But now medication, hopefully I cannot get as bored with uh, uh, relationships. Um, but, you know, this is actually a perfect moment when I say to someone, give me an example of what you talk about. If you're bored. And, if, and half the time people give me just inane stuff because it is boring. And I'm saying, you know, here, look at the conversation that you and I are having. We're anything but bored. We're engaged. We're alive. We're passionate. We're, mm. You know, why don't you bring any of that energy home? Mm. Well, you're the one who is different here. It's not your partner who is different. It's you are the one who's different with me. I get to see this completely different person. And I promise you, the person you're bored with doesn't get to see this woman. Well, they yeah, can listen to the podcast if they want. <laughs> 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 wait, wait, I'm going to add one in on that one because you and I were recently talking about like the people that I choose and I was talking about choosing perhaps better this time than previously yes. and you know somebody who's like there's a little bit more aliveness, there's a little bit more intensity and um, you said to me something about how, and, and I was like, I'm, I'm happy that I'm in a better part of my life where I'm choosing something like that for myself. And you said, you're allowing yourself to have it. Uh -huh. So anyway, I thought that was interesting because yes. I, there's no way in previous relationships where I would describe it as boring that that person, no matter what passion I brought in, was going to become a different person. Mm. Part of it was like the choice piece. Because I often, see the, the very way that you put it, which I think is really unfair, nice and boring. Sorry. No, no, <laughs> I, it's, it's a, it's, you're not the only one and therefore it's super useful. Yeah. Is that it's unfair because um, I think the word boring often means safe. Mm. That's so interesting. It means you're not going to hurt me. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're harmless. You're not going to hurt me. You don't have to, if you don't have as many interests, if you're not as independent, if you're not traveling the globe, then I don't have to be nearly as threatened. Mm. Because boring means you don't do much. Mm. 
Mm. Boring means you don't talk about much. Boring means you're not particularly curious. Mm. And all those words sometimes actually resonate with the word safe. And so when, when people say boring, I, you know, of course I could have a whole conversation about boring, but I don't think it will be useful. I think what's more useful is to ask, can you handle, this was the same thing to you, can you handle not safe or less safe, not not safe, but a bit less safe, because that will also come with less boring. Yes, always less okay? safe. And that means that you have to remain more interesting. Because mm. with somebody who you consider boring, you make no effort. True. That's why I said the woman who's sitting here is not the woman that this guy gets to meet. You make well, no fair, effort. I'm not saying I'm boring right now, but... Um, no, I don't think you are at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, get, I get to enjoy you. But I think that when you are bored, you don't yeah. act in a way that is similar to the way that you are with me. Yeah, and then it's like a cycle. What if, um, God, I had a question as you were talking to Sam, but I got lost in your amazing thoughts. I can, um, I can jump in if you want yeah, to have a question, yeah. if well you remember. I was wondering, when you were talking about authenticity, and same here with the boring thing, is it that, because I come from a collectivist culture, that Which one? it's um, Jordanian-Palestinian. Mm -hmm. yep. So if I'm in that collectivist culture and then I come to more of the individualized culture right. and with time with globalization, we've all become more individualist. Do you think it comes from that? Like, what do I want? I'm yes, authenticity is a feature of individualistic cultures. So basically that's kind of spreading and people are kind of thinking like more me, me, me than a team and that is impacting relationships as a whole. I mean, I'm reducing it. but No, 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 you're right on track. But to, to the way I understand this, okay? And, you know, by the way, I sound super confident, but that doesn't mean I'm sure of anything. Because I think relationships these days are so complicated and confusing that it would be really false to think that one has all the answers. Mm -hmm. When you live in a collectivist society, the way that most people used to live before, when it comes to relationships, the rules were clear. Yeah. The hierarchies were clear. Every guy knew what he could ask for. Every wife knew what she should never tell the husband. You know who has a right to demand for sex. You know who's going to wake up to feed the baby. You know whose career matters most. You know how to preserve the honor of the family, etc., etc. In that system, there's a lot of certainty. There's a lot of belonging. There's a clear sense of identity. And there is very little freedom. And we shifted mm. from the tribe to the city and from the city to the digital and from the digital to the metaverse. It's only getting more fractured and atomized. And as we shifted, we began to have less rules and more choice and more options. Yeah. When you have rules and you can't divorce, it doesn't really matter how happy you are. Yeah. And you're not busy thinking, when is it time to leave? Mm -hmm. Or how much effort should I put in there? Mm -hmm. Because there's no exit. No options. But when you have divorce, when you have economic independence of women, when you can leave, that's when you begin to ask, how good is this? Is it worth staying? Should I put in more effort? How much more shall I try? Maybe it's time to say stop. Yeah. And that is all the questions of happiness and authenticity. So you have a lot more freedom, but it's a lot heavier these days because you have to come up with all the answers yourself. Whereas in your collectivist traditional culture, the answers were provided by the community. Shut up and stay with your husband. Sorry, but yeah. that was like, that's really where, yes. like, where I come yes. from is like yes. just like that. Like yes. whoever, if a woman complains, yes. shut up, 
Stay with him. You have a family. That's You're right. lucky. And if you're not happy with him, find your happiness in every other part of your life. Yeah. yeah. Because I don't know my question now, but it feels silly. No. <laughs> no, I think that this this just your question and where you're from adds a whole context to what we're discussing. It's an amazing question. That's why my question. <laughs> Shut the fuck up, Lex. My question was about horniness. So, because yeah. um, this, I well, it, in that system where it's shut up and be and be with, stay with your husband, nobody asks you about your horniness. That is true. Sex okay. is a woman's marital duty. Yeah. If she likes it or not, if she enjoys it or not, mm. it's re- not particularly relevant. Yes, mm. that's true. So again, this same episode from this morning, I I, I didn't think that it resonated with me, but I, there's five million questions that came from it. Um, this man, well, we'll link it in the show notes so yeah, everyone yeah, can yeah. understand what we're talking about. Um, but he was saying that he lost his libido and lost his desire after those four months and it was because, you know, he, he felt uh, vulnerable and responsible for these women emotionally. And you were saying before, like, if, if someone's boring, maybe it means they're safe. But then I think people who are safe, I don't want to have sex with them. So how then do I, if I know that logically, this is the reason why, and I think it's quite similar to this man on this podcast, how do I then change that? Like how do I ignite a, a desire for someone that I really like as a person and maybe they're not boring, maybe they're just safe and lovely and maybe I like everything about them but after the first month of that spark, I know I'm going to get over it. Like I even date people and I meet them and I'm so into them and I think to myself, enjoy how turned on you are by them because you know in three months. Yeah, you know. So the nice thing about this young man that asked me, you know, I have been dating since I'm almost 40, I've been dating forever Mm -hmm. and I realised that after four months I lose interest is that if I had met this guy five years ago, he would not have said this. Mm. He would have said, I haven't found the right person. Mm. Mm-hmm. And he would have thought that the reason that he's still single is because he hasn't found the person. Mm. This was the first time he began to say, what is it that with me, because I'm the constant factor, mm-hmm. that after I look at decades of dating, I realize I've never been able to stay longer than a few months with the same person. Mm. And when that begins to shift, something, you know, now you begin to ask a different set of questions. Mm-hmm. So this is for him. For you, look, I mean, the, my whole book, Mating in Captivity, is about this very dilemma. Yes. How do we reconcile inside the same relationship love and desire, security and adventure, um, safety and predictability on one side and risk and novelty and exploration on the other. And I do say that what nurtures love isn't always what ignites desire. Mm. They are not necessarily the same needs and they don't spring from the same source and it, it is actually a real challenge because it is the first time that we want to experience both in the same relationship. Mm. You want the reliability, you want the dependability, you want a good person that you can build something with, but you also want the person who can put butterflies in your stomach mm-hmm. and who can make you, turn you on and make you feel excited and, and all of that. And if you say to me, I lose the excitement very soon, like a couple of months later, something goes, then we have a very different set of questions. Like, what is it? Why is danger a turn on? Why is not having the primary way that you know you want? Mm. Why is, oh, you're actually yeah. asking me? I don't know. You understand? I don't know why it's a turn on. You don't have to answer them right away, but your questions will be useful for you. It's like, 
Why can't I want what I have? Mm. I have an issue with this actually my whole life. In, in every career, aspect? Every aspect of I, I never am. I have a really hard time being in the moment. The minute you have that thing that you've wanted, you lose interest instantly. Mm. So you're what we call on a hedonic treadmill. Oh, God. It you know that exhausting. term? It's like the, I achieved the thing I wanted and the moment I have it, I lose interest in it. It doesn't value. I don't yeah. value it anymore. I'm up for the next challenge. Yes. Oh, it's also borderline escapism. Even when I'm having a bad time, it's it's bizarre. It's like I flip. So if I'm having a, a bad time, I will almost fantasize. and have an escapism thinking about what either has been that's good or what could be that's good. Then when I'm having a good time, I think about what could go wrong or why I think this thing that I got isn't isn't good enough anymore and I have to keep achieving in a different way. It's it's like I can never be in the current time period that I'm in. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. So um I guess I'll just have to If I'm in um, tell me if I heard it well. If yeah. I'm in a situation that is good, mm. I am const I'm a, I become restless mm, mm-hmm. and I begin to think what else is out there mm-hmm. and what other good things are there that I mm-hmm. don't know. And mm-hmm. if I'm in a situation that is not good, I'm also instantly asking how do I get out of it and what else can I find? Yeah. And so I find myself constantly restless mm. and in a state of agitation where whatever I'm in, I am constantly wanting to lift myself from into mm. something else. Yes. And sometimes it's probably very resourceful and sometimes it's exhausting. Yes. Because I don't get to savor things much. The minute I yeah. have it, I disconnect from it. Mm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, with, yeah, absolutely. So how do I get horny again? <laughs> <laughs> so how do I take that knowledge? And then maintain my libido with people because it's it's actually becoming. I think I'm having the realization that this that my best friend apparently this man on the podcast that I'm obsessed with, where I'm going. Oh well, I'm probably the common denominator here in terms of my libido crashing off. Maybe it isn't that they're boring, and safe. Maybe it's that I have an aversion to safety. So then how do I die? How in theory would someone uh, dive into that? Let me ask you something. How much when you grew up Mm. did you find tremendous solace in the need to know I can get out of here? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole time. Okay. Mm. And did you get out of there or did you constantly plot in your head your escape fantasies? Mm. I mean, I got out of there in terms of, like, I would. I had three jobs in year twelve, so I wouldn't be at home. Right. So I would. I got out of there physically, mm-hmm. but I mean emotionally. I moved away from home, and then you know. Now, if you have three jobs at twelve, you're not just grade out of 12. there physically. Grade twelve. Grade twelve. That's I was 18, seventeen. Seventeen, eighteen. If you have three jobs at seventeen, eighteen, you're not just physically removed. Yeah. You're doing a lot of things that have a lot of emotional currency. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not depend on anybody. I yeah. can take care of myself. Mm. Nobody's going to tell me no. Mm. I do what I want. Mm. I can get out anytime I want. Yeah, I mean, I currently have six jobs, so... But it's not the jobs. It's the meaning of the jobs. It's the... It's the meaning. Of, if you are a 17-year-old with three jobs, mm. the meaning of those jobs, what did it mean for you to have three jobs? That you had economic independence, mm-hmm. that you could decide what you wanted to do with your money, that nobody was going to tell you. Mm-hmm. Nobody was going to say no. Mm. No restrictions were going to be put on you. Mm. You were buying your freedom, mm. your escape outlet mm. all the time. Mm. 
Okay, and now you're telling me the same thing is happening to me oh, in my relationships. Yeah. I do with my partner what I learned to do growing up. Yeah. God. But then, but then how, in theory, would someone get out of that? Like, so the first thing think? is you first sit with what I just said. Okay. Right? Is uh, Where is this from? What am I repeating here? What is this meaning that I, I lose my interest, I'm instantly thinking about what else is out there, how do I leave this? No sooner have I landed that I'm already taking mm. off. Mm. You know, what is this thing inside of me? And where do I recognize it? Where else have I experienced something like this? And what purpose did it serve for me when I developed this extreme skill of mine, which is that I can eject at any time. Mm. And then you begin to think about that. And slowly you connect that with what happens. I'm lying next to this person. And instead of thinking, let me put my hand on you and let's connect, I start to think about what the fuck am I doing here and how do I get out of here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, building and, pillow forts. Okay, that's yeah. problematic. Mm. You know, <clears throat> That has nothing to do with boring safe or anything. That's yeah. all you. And then slowly we unpack this. I mean, mm. this is, before you say, what do I do? It's kind of, how do I think about it? How do I understand mm. it? What does it tell me? Mm. What do I do with that part of me that always needs to be sure that it can get out? And what does that mean for me to have that need all the time? And how does it play out with the people I date? And is it the same in my friendships or when I work here? Yeah. You know, why do I have it in some places and not in others? Yeah. And what is this anxiety that I live with? And slowly, as you begin to make sense of that, you start to tweak it. Maybe it's not as intense as I think it is. Maybe this belongs yeah. to a different time in my life than today and I still am using the same tools from back then when I don't so much need them anymore, etc., etc. And okay. that's when things begin to change. Like unravel it. Okay. Is that well, a Yeah, that listener question was really helpful? good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was, that's very helpful. I'm going to go home and journal about it and try and... Do a timeline? Would that help? Maybe. I feel like I'm a visual person. I'll try yes, and yes. Map, physically map it out. Um, let's play a game. Uh, I also came into this and I said, I'm not going to force Esther to give me a free therapy session. And I just happened to just do, do that. It. So I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. I didn't mean to. I really didn't mean to do that. Um, so we have your. Uh, no, you'd actually. Here's the thing. If we just think about it as you. Then that's what it sounds like. But I think that what we just highlighted is, you know, because you did something that often people do. The minute you understand something, you say, now what shall I do? Mm. And sometimes the best thing to do is first sit with this. Mm -hmm. You've just connected two dots that have done their best for a long time to never meet. Mm. Yeah. So let these dots acquaint themselves with each other. Mm -hmm. The part of me growing up with the part of me in my relationships now that are doing something that doesn't let me stay wherever I am and ever feel good enough about it. Mm -hmm. That's plenty to swallow. Okay. I'll re-listen to this. You know? I'm crying in bed. And <laughs> journaling. Okay. So you didn't call this a card game before. No, called I called it, it a game of stories. Yes. It happens to be on cards, mm -hmm. but it's a storytelling game mm -hmm. that I created during the pandemic mm -hmm. when I was missing my friends, missing intimacy, missing connection, spontaneity. And I thought, how do we keep that thing going? Mm -hmm. And I think relationships are stories and mm -hmm. stories are bridges mm -hmm. between people. And I had a tremendous time creating this game, thinking partners, first dates, families with kids, mm. teams, you know, how do we elevate the conversation mm. so that 
to use your word, you're not bored. Not boring. I love a storytelling game. Um, I'm going to call it a card game. Uh, Same name, by the way, as the podcast. Yes. Where should we Why? Because I thought people listen, like you listen. Yeah. But now I want to help you. Or I want to just create for you the possibility to have conversations mm. with all the people in your life that resemble what you find so gripping mm. in the podcast. Mm. And to interact yes. kind of. Yes. Um, okay, well, I want to play just 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 one little round with you. They're kind of like... You're going to ask me. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you, you too. Oh, God. <laughs> I just got through without crying. I almost cried at one point uh, and I was so proud of myself. But we'll, hopefully you choose a fun one. Okay, like we're doing a tarot reading. Yes. Feel your energy. Yes. And, and you choose, wanted to pick one. These are my... Pick one. All right. Up. Ooh. My latest crush is... But you're married for 40-something years, but that doesn't mean you Does can't have, mean crushes. have crushes. Who's the latest crush? Koshi? <laughs> <laughs> My latest crush. It is true that I have not had crushes lately, so mm-hmm. it's uh, it, I have to to dig. But I can tell you of a crush that I did have that that really I found I I, I got very amused by. I was on a twelve-hour flight, mm. and I was sitting here, and there was somebody sitting just mm-hmm. a few rows in front, mm-hmm. and I kept thinking, what would have happened if I met this person? you know, umpteen years before. And I just developed this whole conversation with this person. And then I discovered that on the planes, you have this thing where you can talk with your... Yes, uh... Uh talk with a different seat. Yes, so I tried to talk with a different seat. (laughs) What was was your opening line? Sitting two rows behind on the left. (gasps) (laughs) And did did they respond? I will leave that open. You didn't, the card only asked about the crush. Oh, you didn't ask about. Oh my god! That. It's so true. Did you play Tetris? <laughs> <laughs> you play Tetris with Keep asking. Okay, are you gonna hold it for me? Should yes. I, okay, then I, I don't know what. I'm gonna go on the end because the, the obvious way to go is the. Oh shit! I'm high maintenance when it comes to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um. Oh. I, look, Lev, you say, I don't know. What am I high maintenance? <laughs> I mean, I guess emotionally, I, uh, what am I high maintenance about? I think I'm, I think I'm high, I'm, I, I like things a certain particular way. And if they're not done in that certain way, like I guess a low level example would be when my mum used to wear my clothes, like uh, the laundry, I would lose my mind when I was a kid because it wasn't done in the correct colour order, you know? But then I think that transfers into my adult life and my career when something isn't, for example, if I'm a judge on The Masked Singer, if something is edited in a way and I think that wasn't the best take, it really upsets me to the point where I have to like, I have to vent about it. And that might be hard for others and high maintenance others to understand the gravity of what something not done perfectly to me means to me. That's a perfect example. <laughs> That's a very good example. You. Because you also distinction, distinguish between the high maintenance is the venting. Mm. My high maintenance is not that you have a certain exact idea of how you want things mm. to be. Is that when you, when you don't get the thing that you had imagined, mm. 
Now, the, the venting, the, the, the fascinating question to me about, I love venting. I find it a very interesting thing to explore. I love it. You know. Oh, nothing better than Quetching, vent. venting, you know. Oh, I call my radio co-host. Complaining. I have a whole morning. blog on the art of complaining. Oh, I need to. I just, <laughs> I think it's an amazing piece of, mm. of behavior that we don't spend enough time understanding. Mm. What is at stake when people are venting? What are they, you know, what are they doing actually? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, my radio co-host cops it literally every morning for at least an hour of me calling him saying that was the most minute things like my dog's collar isn't put on correctly or uh, big things like work. So the way this one works yes. that I like the most is actually we can play the whole game with a mm. group and they are prompt questions and tokens and it creates an amazing energy. But what I really love is when I do my dinners. I love to host dinners mm. and I just put two cards under every plate. Oh, that's cool. And then I make, at some point, I just say to people, just go into little groups of four. And then three people choose which is the card that you will answer. It's not like you're going to say, no, I'm going to pick something else. But there's something, you know, when I don't know you, I can think what would have been a really interesting question, Mm. you know. I'm irrational when it comes to. I'm most competitive, Mm. you know. If I wasn't working as a, I would be a... Mm. You know, a, te- a text message I fantasize receiving, a conversation I wish I could have mm-hmm. again, what I would whisper to my younger self, a risk I took that changed my life. I mean, and now if I don't know you, generally I leave the dinner with a new friend. And if I do know you, or I think I do, I leave hearing stories that I never knew about. Mm. And I love those elements of surprise. That's Mm. the storytelling. It's that the story arrives, most of the time people don't even know themselves what they were going to tell. And then you think you know this person. You never told me this. Mm. When I hear that, I'm happy. Esther, I thank you so much for your time. I know you've got to go do other things, but I'm again. I can't. I can't overstate how lucky I feel to be able to speak with you. That conversation was so amazing, better than I could have ever imagined. And I can't wait to uh, get my friends to play this storytelling game with me. Go ahead, and you should do this as a team. We should do it. We would. I just wanted to plug her shows. The shows, of course. Um, So the game, by the way, is in Australia now. Finally. Finally. The wait list. We'll put a link in the bioseprl.com. Yes, That's we'll put a link in the show notes. Dot com slash Australia 2022. Slash Australia 2022. And you've got live shows. You've got yes. one, well, the Sydney one, one of the Sydney ones have already happened because it's happening. Sydney, number one, Melbourne, sold out. But Brisbane still has a few seats. And Sydney, number two, on December 3rd, has a few seats left too. So she's practiced. I love it. I never read anything out. Uh, <laughs> obviously, if you love Esther, listen to her podcast, go to live shows if you're in, if you're in the city that she is, uh, watch her TED Talks, read her books, get everything, be a super fan like I am. Um, thank you so much. So treat. Thank you. Listener.